Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast. This is episode 2021.4. As usual, I have Phil. Hey, Phil. Hey, Rohan. How's it going? Good. This episode is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Nebukasa. Easily access your local Home Assistant instance remotely for a small monthly fee that supports the Home Assistant project. Configuration is done by the user interface, so there's no fiddling with router settings, SSL certificates, or any YAML. This episode is sponsored by morebeer.com. For over 25 years, they've helped creative people like you create your own beer, wine, or coffee at home. Find out more at morebeer.com. Listeners of the show can save $10 off their first order using promo code HASPODCAST. That's H-A-S-S podcast in one word. Jumping right into it, Phil, 2021.4. First and foremost, Home Assistant Analytics. Have you have you seen some of the charts there? Uh, no, I haven't yet, but it does look cool. I've literally just installed the beta. We're about to flick on the um, the analytics. I saw that, yeah, like they've been such a, like, because we're obviously testing Home Assistant during the beta. There's been a lot of people that have just flicked it on anyway, and they've actually had a whole bunch of data coming through, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So basically... For, for those listening, so if you don't know what it is, essentially Home Assistant can send back uh, anonymized data from your from your instance. Uh, now, just if you, when you're reading the release notes, you'll notice they do talk about privacy. They do talk about all this stuff. You know, don't don't freak out. It is again, it's an opt in, and if you don't if you don't want to do that, don't do it. Um, but again, all of that stuff is open source. That's not uh, mm. coming from any other closed source places. So. Uh, I was actually just reading the release notes uh, not that long ago, and they're just saying, you know what, go check the code, uh, jump in, and audit it yourself. Yeah, exactly. They're they're encouraging you to turn it on, and uh, yeah. if you don't want to, that's cool. But uh, what essentially what happens is they send some telemetry, uh, again, anonymized telemetry back to Home Assistant, uh, i.e., the develop, uh, sorry, the developers, and essentially what they can figure out is, you know, how are people deploying Home Assistant? How is it used? That kind of thing so that they can actually process these upgrade updates and things like that a lot faster, a lot better. Maybe not faster, but but just at least focus on what needs to be focused on, right? So as an example, if nobody is using one specific way of installing, um, so for example, I use, I use Home Assistant on a container. If nobody's using Home Assistant on containers, well, maybe they'll look at deprecating that platform or maybe they'll look at, you know, c- converting that to something else down the road. Mm. So, you know, it does help. Um, the analytics are uh, freely available. So you can go to analytics.homeassistant.io and check it out there uh, and uh, and actually see the data and see that tabulated data. So it, it, it is actually pretty interesting. Yeah, so it's obviously running right now around for beta users and very interesting. So uh, at least so this is obviously very skewed to people that are on the bleeding edge like you and I and the developers yeah. that, you know, go in and try and get it into a week early. But, you know, 49.5% of users running the beta are running Home Assistant via um, the operating system. And mm-hmm. only, you know, a quarter of people are running Home Assistant via a Docker container. Uh, the average number of entities running in Home Assistant, remember this is all skewed to those beta users, is 380. And the average number of automations is 39. Now, when I flick on my integration with analytics, I'm sure that average number of automations is going to spike a little bit more. But there's 82 average integrations. Uh, and, you know, the Amazon Echo in- installation has 227 installations. Google Cast is very popular. MQTT is up there. So this is all data that I can't wait to see once people start upgrading and it starts getting into real world cases. 
we're interested to see what's the average number of automations people are running, you know, like yeah. what are people running Home Assistant on, you know, and what integrations are people, you know, are using and what's the most popular? Because I think that data alone will be able to assist the developers a lot, you know, where to focus, you know, for example, uh, the Philips Hue integration, I can't see that uh, at the moment on this list. That doesn't need mm-hmm. to say that once, you know, things go live that, uh, the Philips Hue integration won't jump to the first place, right? And in that case, you know, if Philips Hue is number one, then Home Assistant will need to put in you know, more resources to make sure that that integration is rock solid and that you know, yeah. any breaking change that comes out to the Philips Hue integration needs to be managed better because it's going to affect the most amount of people. So this is where that sort of information becomes really powerful. Sure, sure, exactly. And and even from there, it uh, it's it's actually pretty cool. I'm just clicking around as as you're saying this. Um, mm. You know, it, it, even internal integrations. It's it's interesting because you know, obviously, some things like authentication and stuff is turned on for everybody always. Yep. Uh, but then, but then you start seeing, hey, you know what? System health. Not everybody has system health. Um, actually, as of this point, if the numbers I'm looking at, it's exactly one person has system health turned <laughs> off. Uh, you know, it, it's things like that, right? Which is pretty interesting. Um, mm. Again, webhooks are are among the top installations. Uh, again, saying like you said, uh, the Amazon Echoes, uh, Home Assistant Cloud, and and things like that too. So it's actually pretty interesting, right? You can you can start to see, okay, what uh, what are people doing? And you know, right now I'm seeing, you know, number sixty three is FFmpeg, and I'm I'm starting to get curious what people are doing mm. with that. As in, why are there this many people using that, right? So, um, you know, how how useful is, is this data to you and me, Phil? Probably not very, but it's still very interesting to see, um, I think. so. And also, because this is all open source and, you know, it's made available publicly, there's mm-hmm. nothing stopping, you know, uh, other open source home automation projects or even... Yep. You know, your home automation products that are paid, you know, like your Samsung Smart Things or your Fabaro Home Center controls, totally. they can now go in and see what, you know, products are people using, what are the most popular sort of smart home integrations and mm. tailor, you know, systems for that. So it's a good way to give back to the home automation sphere in general, I think. 100%. Yeah. So one thing to note, we actually spoke about something like this a long time ago, Mark thinking like a couple of years ago, it was originally uh, an update to the Home Assistant updater component. Uh, They would start pushing, you know, basic usage statistics back to Home Assistant. This has now been completely replaced uh, because I think it just wasn't working. They weren't getting enough data. So this is a whole new integration that's been written just for this version. So, yeah. So so I wonder if that's that's, uh, getting deprecated. It is. It's actually uh, part of the breaking changes for this release. So uh, the uh, updated component, so you, there is a, a couple of parameters you could have. I think there was include, use components, uh, and reporting. There were configuration options that were available yeah. in your YAML. They've now been deprecated. So if you have those, uh, they won't do anything. You may as well just remove them from your YAML. Perfect. All right. So that was, yeah, so that's pretty big first one. Obviously not, you know, uh, a fit like a feature that people are going to use every day mm-hmm. but uh one that has been added in is the ability to filter automations scripts and scenes based on the entities the devices and the areas that they are in 
So this is something cool. So there's been a constant feature request to have the ability to uh, organize, you know, automations and scripts yeah. into folders, right? And I don't know about you, Rahan, but I've started trying to name my automations and scripts in a certain convention. Yep. Uh, for example, like, uh, you know, the room name first and then what it does and, you know, what action that's taking place. Yeah. Just to try I- and, you know, so if I'm using the services area that I can get to the automation that I want, I know what it's going to be called, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I do like automation or notification or like I, I kind of categorize them that way, right? And then and I don't I don't go as deep as you do, but mm. I, I try and categorize it at least so I can at least help filter down that way. So it's it, it'd be nice to have that kind of folder like effect, right, that you can have. Yes. So now if you go into your configuration area and into the automation section, there's a new filter area up the top. And those filters allow you to now filter by the entity and the area and, of course, the device. It's not available in the developer tools uh, that I can see. So if you rely on the del- uh, the states area to do anything like that, you won't find it there, but you can find it from that automations, scenes, and the scripts sections of the configuration panel. Right. Um, and speaking of automations, um, there's actually been a really, 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 I mean, from my perspective, I think this was one of the biggest things we were missing in automations uh, is the ability to debug automations. Um, so if you're a programmer or you've programmed in the past, or you're familiar with the concepts, uh, you know, debugging is one of those things where you want to do things like, Hey, how is it actually stepping through this automation? How is it actually, uh, how, how, how is the automation actually working in, Mm. in real life rather than how I think it's working? Um, so there's a lot of those kind of features that have kind of uh, been brought in and, uh, you know, whether it's it, it's Paulus, Eric, Bram, Thomas, everybody's kind of collaborated and uh, come up with some kind of a way to way to, uh, you know, see this and, and visualize it, too, as well, uh, physically. Um, so Paulus talked about this a little bit uh, when we quizzed uh, when we quizzed him about what was coming up. So, I mean, since we have you, Paulus, I mean, so switching tracks a little bit from from a home assistant perspective where uh, you know what are some of your plans what's uh, what's happening where are things going that's a good question um yeah so we are i mean home assistant is kind of chugging along nicely right it's <laughs> it's uh, it's happening i think uh, last year i mentioned uh, chip that's something that definitely we need to start looking at um we yeah i had kind of thought that we already would be working on it but it's uh, things always come up so, mm. for example, one of the things that just came up is that we're adding tracing to automations. So, until now, automations have really been a black box. They fire, you have to go into your logbook and see kind of what did happen, what just happened. Right. And now with uh, tracing, and this is really a kind of developer uh, term, but what it means is that you can actually see every step that was taken inside your automation including like if you have an end condition, how each individual condition, uh, you can actually look into it and see what were the variables that were available at this time, what was the result of this condition, and so you can see why did my automation not fire. Right. Uh, you can also see what actions happened, and then you know we introduced this concept of context like a year and a half or maybe two years ago. I don't fully remember. But with context, we can actually see which state changes happened because of this automation. 
Right. So now when you see your trace of like a timeline of how each action happened in your script or in the, tri- in the action part of your automation, we can actually see also the state changes that then happened in Home Assistant because of that. So if you have a long running in automation, for example, one that uh, has like a wait for trigger, which is a, mm-hmm. uh, which are the, the cooler one, like it, 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 this cool concept that we added last year to have these long running automations, um, that's now very easy to debug because you can see, is this automation actually running? Because you can look at traces while they're being recorded. Right. And then you can see, oh yeah, it's still running and it's waiting for the next trigger to move on. And then, oh, this trigger took like five hours and then these actions were happened as part of this automation. Yeah, that's cool. Because I um, I must say that like my entire, like whenever I've tried to work out why didn't an automation fire, it's always, all right, go and check conditions. And I have yeah. sprawling condition logic, right? <laughs> like, you know, and there's an and group here and then that subgroup by an or over here and all that. So being able to like reach, like run a trace on those things is going to be like a game changer like it's going to yeah empower totally. so many you know different you know permutations of you know and clean like reduce yaml because we can do much more complex automations now and then yeah it's gonna be fantastic yeah. and, and you know before this people would always look at their log files and stuff yeah and it's just it's a kind of an abuse of log files almost mm-hmm. right like because now sure. people had to know about logging and had to figure it all out and so yeah. i really hope that with this um it will be really insightful. So something we were also talking to Paulus last week about Rohan was uh, the, you know, where things are going with Home Assistant and, mm-hmm. you know, where the future will lie. And, you know, we started talking about, you know, trigger-based sensors. And for the first time in 2021.4, they've started the groundwork for this. Um, I believe it starts with template entities. So there is the ability for, you know, template entities to be triggered uh, based you know, either from a webhook or something like that in Home Assistant. Um, but it was really cool to see, you know, what Paulus has, you know, the future of this working from. So let's take a listen to what Paulus, you know, has big plans for this little feature. Uh, so we've uh, recently updated the REST integration. Um, I don't know if you saw this or noticed this, but the REST integration used to be platform-based. So you had to do like, hey, sensor, platform, mm-hmm. REST, and you define your REST endpoint. And then right. if you wanted to fetch the data from the same endpoint, you would have to define a second sensor or a second binary sensor. And so That's right. we were overloading REST endpoints, right? There was like, oh, there's like REST endpoints. Like now we're fetching the same endpoint five times. Yeah. yeah. And then actually we implemented a faster uh, way of fetching the data and then certain endpoints were uh, hitting DDoS protection because we were making so many requests. Yeah. And so we've rewritten the REST integration in a recent release where you define one endpoint and then you define all the entities that are derived from this. So the sensors and binary sensors and you define like the templates. That's and so yeah. we fetch yeah. the data once and then we update all those entities. That's and nice. that's actually been an approach where we've been thinking like, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. So until now, we told everybody always like, oh, here's template entities and yeah. template entities. And we did a lot of work on it actually to make them, you know, last year to make them super, like be aware of what in the state machine they rely on. And so they can, when things are in the state machine, we can see if mm-hmm. we have to update them. But then it's actually annoying because everything has to go through the state machine. And so if you see with the REST integration, we take the data from the source, you write exactly what you want to write and nothing else. And the beauty of something like the REST integration is that, um, and we don't do this yet, but we could provide blueprints. 
So right. there's a lot of REST endpoints in the world that you might want to turn into sensors and entities, but a lot of REST endpoints might want to be customized based on the city or mm. if it's, for example, for weather. And yeah, sure. of yeah. course, an integration, making it an integration is better, but not everybody is capable of doing that. Yeah. So as like a step towards making integrations, we could have people, for example, have a weather, I don't know, I'm just say like open weather uh, blueprint that you put in your location, it will actually set up the REST integration to fetch from the right REST endpoint and create the right entities and mm -hmm. done. Yeah. yeah, that's perfect. So that's kind of something we're exploring. And as part of that exploration, I actually just uh, yesterday created like a prototype, which you were calling the trigger entity. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you have a trigger in an automation, uh, a bunch of variables become available that the, the trigger was based on, right? So the right. trigger could be data sent to an MQTT topic or a webhook coming in with data. Now, if we take the same approach like REST, but then instead of a REST source, we have a trigger source and then allow you to create entities based on that. So for example, now it would be very easy to have a webhook being sent to Home Assistant turn into update like five entities, like a mm. bunch of sensors, a bunch of binary sensors. Um, there's some overlap because, of course, MQTT triggers, right, would then mm. pretty much be the same sure. as having MQTT sensors and topics. But I think that we're going to, th this is going to make it also a lot easier. Um, if we, if uh, we don't know yet in what shape this is going to come to Home Assistant and definitely, well, I wouldn't say definitely, but probably not for April. Yeah. Um, but it would, again, open up a lot of cool ways to turn an event-driven things like webhooks or motion detection events or topic messages mm -hmm. into entities. And entities are usually better for, you know, entities are great for tracking history. Entities are great for inside yeah. dashboards, right? Because we cannot capture events so well on the dashboard because they happen and they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. So. And another cool thing about trigger entity would be um, sometimes we have motion detection events, but people want to say, hey, when motion is detected, actually consider motion detected for at least 20 seconds. So this is right. something that could be part of a trigger entity saying trigger whenever the, other, the trigger triggers and then after 20 seconds, turn it off again, like have a timeout added to it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, that's actually really cool. It sort of yeah. allows Home Assistant to be receiving data coming in and creating entities as opposed to having to poll for things all the time, right? Which exactly. Without, right now you can do that with MQTT, but then once you set, you have to set up an MQTT broker and a sort of line, get all that working, right? Whereas that, yeah, yeah it, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been, you know, we've been, I think the, until now, whenever people wanted to do these kind of things, we always said create an integration, create an integration. Mm. Yeah. And... That still will hold true. Like if you want to reach the most amount of people, if you want to make it as easy as possible, integration is the way to go. Sure. But I think that, you know, once we have these blueprints uh, or for like, I don't know, blueprints for trigger entities or just trigger entities to begin with, I think we can already get very far uh, without integrations. And then once we see that something is popular, convert it into an integration. Yeah. Yep. So that way it's more accessible to more people. And also, I think, I mean, if something can be built using a trigger entity, I mean, maybe we should have just a wrapper for trigger entities to be wrapped up as integrations. Sure. 
that would be kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it breaks down that barrier between, you know, like somebody like me who has no idea how to create an integration. Right. Right. And, but I, but I might know how to do the rest of it and take that and throw it in, in a wrapper yeah. and boom. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also going to help. Like we, we get, um, often there's been vendors and they're like, we want to integrate with home assistant. I'm like, great. This is how you do it. They're like, no, no, no. What is your API? And I always say, no, mm-hmm. Home Assistant, we don't have an API to create sensors and binary sensors and all that stuff because we don't want to add to the problem that we're trying to solve, right? If a vendor implements the Home Assistant API, that means that their data is still not accessible for the rest of the world, right? So instead, Home Assistant should speak the protocol of these vendors. Yep. And yep. so if we allow them to make it easier to create a protocol that we then consume because we have things like a trigger entity, et cetera, I think that will definitely help uh, also just get more stuff in Home Assistant, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's what a lot of people want. They want to see all the stuff and then be able to automate on it. So the easier we make that for everybody to use it and contribute to, I think the better. So in terms of new platforms, uh, so everything everything we talked about so far is just within Home Assistant mm-hmm. and, and, you know, what, uh, the home assistant developers, uh, the core developers have kind of been focused on. Uh, so in terms of what new, uh, there are a couple of things. So uh, first of all, uh, the Panasonic Viera now has support. Uh, so that, that that integration now has support for remotes. Ooh, nice. Mm-hmm. Also, Philips TV now has support for remotes. So kind of keeping on that same uh, same topic. So it's it's nice to see that these uh, these are coming in. I remember when the remote component was very first created for the Logitech Harmony Hub, yeah. uh, and it's just good to that was like years ago now. Like it's good to see that you know this remote component is finally starting to get some more TVs added in. Oh, totally, totally, and and you know it's it's there's a bunch that are already there. Like I think Samsung mm. has uh, some level of integration at least. Uh, yeah, LG I believe has it, which I think you use that right. The, yeah. Yep. Love my WebOS TV; it's the best. Yeah, yeah. Also, GoGo Gate Two and iSmart Gate. Um, so uh, to provide some wireless sensors. Uh, sorry, provide battery sensors for their wireless door sensors as well. Excellent. So if you got those, those are in there. Um, also, the Reem EcoNet products uh, now have support for climate entities. So you know, more climate goodness coming in. Never. <laughs> That's awesome. Never a bad thing. All right, some breaking changes. Um, of course, there's some breaking changes. Uh, first of all, the Xiaomi Mio fans have been moved to the config flow. Now, uh, if you have this set up in your YAML, it will be imported into the UI on startup, and then you can remove it from your YAML. Uh, very interestingly, though, I know in the release notes, it's flagged as the Xiaomi Mio fan um, I actually have a Xiaomi Mio fan, which I am got in Home Assistant via a custom component. So I was really excited to see this in the release notes. But when I plugged it in through the UI, I got an error from Home Assistant saying that my Xiaomi Mio fan was not recognized uh, as a compatible device. Oh, interesting. But interestingly, I do have a Xiaomi Mio Wi-Fi switch that has now come in to my UI. I don't remember seeing that previously. So I have a feeling that this Xiaomi Mio change may not just be for fans and maybe for other Wi-Fi devices that you may have linked right. through YAML. So just watch out for that one. Well, that's, that's one way to find out that your platform's not supported is when it's broken. And you're <laughs> like, oh, 
Yeah, so luckily, uh, but if anyone's, I will leave a link to that custom component for the Xiaomi Mio fan that I'm, I've got running. Um, it's perfect. I have no complaints with it. For whatever reason, the official Home Assistant uh, image doesn't support it. But yeah, there is a custom component to fill that gap. Nice. And kind of along the same theme, uh, Google Cast, so the YAML configuration for the uh, Google Cast integration is moving to the UI as well. So uh, that'll be fully removed as of 2021.6. So uh, you should be, uh, you can, you know, you can still run with it for a little bit until uh, until the update to that in June. On the um, Google Cast integration, um, mm-hmm. I think they've added in, I, I remember skimming the release notes, and I think there is auto discovery now for Google Cast entities uh, oh. in Home Assistant now. So... You may not need to, you know, specify, you know, hosts to target to. I could be making this up, but that's from my understanding of just skimming the notes. I'm guessing this would also tie in well with the media browser that Home Assistant mm-hmm. has now. So, you know, you can hit that little cast button from within yeah. Home Assistant and it will, you know, detect all those Google Cast entities on your network that you can cast to. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. If, if that's the case, that would be that would be awesome. Uh, and as I mentioned before, the updated component that's, you know, got to remove those uh and uh, those YAML options for sending usage data back to Home Assistant. And also Gritty is gone. So ERCOT shut down layer Gritty after the massive power mess in Texas in mid-February. So I'm assuming Gritty was some form of electricity monitoring service for users. So that's gone and dusted. Yeah. So last week when we spoke to Paulus as well, uh, he also talked about something else cool coming around the corner. We already have in the back end, but we're not going to make it for the UI. For the April April release is uh, debugging. So breakpoints. So yeah. for the non-developers that are listening, a breakpoint is you mark a spot in your code. And when the uh, computer is, ex- that is executing that program runs to that spot, it will pause. And it will allow the developer to look what is happening, what's the value of each variable, and then allows you to kind of step into the program line by line as it's being executed to see what's happening and to really see like every little piece and maybe you can influence the state machine so you know that the next condition is going to pass, these kind of things. Um, and so in the automation world, in Home Assistant, what will happen is that you can actually mark certain actions as a breakpoint. And then when it gets to these uh, actions, it will pause. And then you can actually the same thing as like when you're debugging a program, you can step through it and like take every step. Yeah. Right. That's cool. Like the developer in me is like very excited for this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the non-developer in me is very excited (laughs) for this because usually that's usually why I'm spending weeks on something, you know, very trivial, right? Yeah. And so I think this is going to be really, really cool. And what I hope is that, you know, Everybody will be able to write better automations. Yeah. And then this will also mean that people can write better blueprints. And then yeah. we can share those blueprints. And then even more people can benefit from all the hard work that we're doing. Yeah. 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 So in terms of, um, you know, like debugging and, and, and all that, I know you mentioned that there's, uh, it's not going to be in one of the April releases. Is there, obviously everything relates back to a YAML automation. So will the UI have support? for you know being able to trace a ui the same as if someone had written a automation in yaml because yes because what happens is that the even an automation written in the ui is Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. structurally the same as an automation written in yaml Um, sometimes there's a little bit more constraints the ui will actually have a subset of what is possible in yaml 
Sure. So, but in the end, it's the same engine running the same code. So a trace will work for both uh, automations. The only uh, requirement is that the automation has an ID. So the UI will automatically add IDs to automations. Yeah. And if you um, define them in YAML, you should start adding an ID to your automations. Because that's being used to, you know, keep track of the traces and link them back to the automations. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's a hot tip there. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it's it's gonna be super cool. I think that uh, yeah, it's it, you know automations like it will be uh, easier than ever before to figure out what's going wrong and sure yeah reduce the pain points. I think users are having you know like you know oh, why didn't this automation work? But the frustrations, right? And the yeah, like clearly like there are ways around it already. But the more frustrations people you can remove, right, the better, right? Right, yeah. make I mean, it easier. This is- yeah, I mean, we, you know, we've always talked about how we want to make things easier. And, you know, people are always afraid that we're taking the YAML away as being, you know, that, that that's what it means. Yeah. But, you know, that's not the case here is that we're actually, you know, enhancing whatever you, however you write your automations, you can have great insight in it and write better automations. Yeah. Yep, makes sense. All right. And the cloud strikes again. So we saved it to the end this time. <laughs> uh, so Xiaomi, Yeelite, uh so so Home Assistant released an alert to, um, in the last week, uh, basically for the firmware updates for uh, Yeelite manufactured Xiaomi bulbs. So just to be a bit confusing, right? Like yeah, I know, yeah. right? I, I, you know what? I didn't even realize that uh, Yeelite manufactures Xiaomi. They may actually be the same company. I have no Who idea. Knows? But that's what I assume too. I they've got a pretty close relationship. I just assume they're all the one, right? Like you would think, but like Aquara and, and all that is like just Xiaomi, right? I'd assume yeah, Yeelite yeah. was another well, version of that. Those are those are at least Xiaomi brands, right? Like Xiaomi, mm. Aquara, or, or actually, yeah, I think it is. But like or like the Xiaomi Mi, right? Whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. So may, maybe Yeelite is, and I'm just misinformed. Who knows? So, but Xiaomi has basically said, hey, we want local controls to be restricted since it's a little bit risky in their words. Um, so it sounds like Yeelite wasn't the one making the decision. It sounds mm-hmm. like it was Xiaomi. But basically, if you have that, if you have uh, any of these uh, light bulbs, check alerts.homeassistant.io. There's a thread um, and uh, it talks about how to install ESP Home onto the devices. Uh, which, I mean, if you listen to our last episode, that is now part of uh, the Home Assistant project. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's there's a way to install uh, ESP Home on that, and uh, that should work uh, for you, hopefully. Um, so they are, as far as we know, they're Wi-Fi connected bulbs, um, and the Zigbee devices shouldn't be affected, since kind of the point of Zigbee is to keep everything kind of local, right? So, You know, I've said uh, it again, I'll say it again, this is why I try and avoid wi-fi like the devil mm-hmm. right like why it is any device that talks wi-fi is just a firmware update away from being bricked and unusable yep. in your local environment so zigbee z-wave you know all those bluetooth any local protocol that's fine but wi-fi i don't know just it's same with a tp link right like it's just that all over again you have to yeah end up blocking them which is you know something that we actually spoke to once again with paulus last week about you know just this whole uh you know manufacturers you know becoming you know sort of more security conscious and 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 locking down their sort of 
local control of things. But And Paulus had some interesting things to say about that. On that, I mean, the three of us have kind of talked about this both online and offline in terms of, you know, organizations coming and starting to open up. How are you, how are you seeing that going? Like, are you seeing more organizations as you have these conversations? Are you seeing more organizations saying, hey, yeah, fine, you know what, you're right. Let me, uh, let's, whether open up an exclusive API for Home Assistant or let's let's do, fine, we'll, we'll open up our API in general. Like, how, what, what is that, uh, what is that? You know, kind yeah. of look like. Um, so, I mean, we're having some of these conversations. I think that the, the problem we have is that the, the, there's this stigma around open source that it's small, that it's irrelevant. Mm. Yeah. Even like they only think open source is relevant if there is a well known brand behind it, right? So, yeah, Chrome is open source, Firefox is open source, Linux is right. open source. Yeah, we know this. So, yeah, we take it seriously. But it doesn't mean that they know what it means. And so we actually see a lot of companies that are maybe aware of our existence, but then they don't really realize it. But then sometimes they do realize it because they mess up. So TP-Link, yeah. right? So TP-Link had a, uh, they removed their local API and then a lot of customers called in. It doesn't work yeah. anymore with Home Assistant. And they were like, well, never, was, like, what is Home Assistant? Yeah. And so, you know, I actually got on a call with uh, TP-Link um, last month, yeah, I think last month, and we yeah. discussed this, and they were like, you know, it's it's funny. They initially reached out to me saying, "Yeah, we saw that Home Assistant integrates uh, with TP-Link, but it does this based on like some code that was found on GitHub, <laughs> and this is not an official API." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then I had to tell them, like, well, we're also code that is found on GitHub. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, they were like, okay, okay. And so, I mean, they, they are a big corporation. So they're working on sure. something. So, I mean, for TP-Link, for example, they said that they might have, an, they're going to have a partner-only local API, which fucking dumb, of course. <laughs> Sorry, my language, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we can feel the frustration, right? Yeah, it's just, but anyway, they're gonna have Home Assistant. They want to have Home Assistant as a partner and like implemented API. And I mean, in the end of the day, we're uh, we're open source, so anyone can see that API. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that goes because that's actually a big blocker a lot of the times is that yeah. all these companies want exclusivity because they are very afraid that they are creating value that they're not capturing themselves. So sure. Um, they don't want to have, uh, you know, if they create a product and then they want to have a product that provides some automation based on like the data that their other devices capture. Well, if Home Assistant can do it better, now they're competing with Home Assistant because they had this open API. Right. If they never have this open API, they wouldn't have to compete with Home Assistant or every other home automation platform. But of course, their product is also less popular because they don't have an open API. Right, it's like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So it's it, chicken and egg almost, right? Yeah, but if you look at the big big corporations, is that they all work like this, right? I yeah. mean, Google and Amazon, who are just like throwing around like these minis, uh, their mini assistants for basically free or like very little money. The only way to integrate right now is to have a cloud based API and implement their cloud based API, right? Yeah. So they're working on open standardization, and that definitely will help. Um, but yeah, I think uh, talking to more companies, we see you know it's actually nice because the ESP chips are so cheap. We mm-hmm. see a lot of uh, companies basing uh, their software on like the ESP eight two six six, and now moving towards ESP thirty two. And those were 
tend to be because there's especially the ESPA266 because there's sort of little space on it. They tend to be usually easily to crack or flash, yeah. or, right? Mm-hmm. There was like Tuya Convert, so Tuya yeah. had all these devices and uh, people yeah. would put open source firmware on it. That's kind of going like Tuya has like fixed their stuff to not be yeah. able to do that anymore, which is too bad. But in the void, actually, some companies have stepped in, and the one that I uh, generally reference because we work a lot with them is Shelly. Mm-hmm. Yep. which is a, a Bulgarian company, but they sell ESP8266 and they're also moving to ESP32-based devices, but they actually allow you to flash it. So yeah. the Shelly Relay has just accessible headers and they say this is how you can put your own firmware on it. And there's actually an ESP home-based firmware available. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, but you don't actually have to flash it to begin with because they have a local push API. So they yeah. will actually let Home Assistant know when something changes. So there's even yeah. not... It's not super necessary to flash it to begin with, um, but it's just very cool that they are thinking about this and they are working with this. And I actually, you know, they, they provide the people who work on the integration with all the devices they need and the engineers are open for updating the firmware so the integration yep. is better with Home Assistant. And I hope that we can see more of these kind of companies step up being like, we yeah. know people wanna, like if you have to install a relay behind your light switch, you're obviously not a basic user, yeah. right? This is, yes. <laughs> you need to be more advanced anyway, so you can already require some uh, more technical knowledge from your mm-hmm. users. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree there, and and I think I think you know you bring up a good point, right? Is at the end of the day, I mean, a company like Shelly or even Tuya, they are mostly a hardware company, right? I mean, I'm not sure if they do monetize some of their cloud stuff or anything else some other way, but. You know, it's uh, at, at its heart, it's a it's a hardware company, right? So, to me, I would say, I mean, given the choice, I would I would pick Shelly because, in, in I mean, between these two cases, right? Because I mean, it is open, it is whatever, and, and it's still hardware, right? So they're still getting the revenue of that hardware, it, in my yeah. eyes. But, right, and it, like the as a consumer, the choice is also easy because local APIs, yeah, tend to not break because they will remain working. Right, the yeah. vendor has to do active work to break a local API. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's actually another thing where you know we're like, oh, what is Home Assistant working on? Um, I want to better educate the users about um, sustain, like how uh, the long-term uh, impact of your IoT product, like how you can use it. So, if a product relies on the cloud, then you have to look into how is this cloud funded. Yeah, because if there's no funding for the cloud, like there's these light bulbs you can pick up for like seven, eight dollars. They connect to Wi-Fi, they connect to Google Assistant, Amazon. I'm like, okay, who pays for this light bulb yeah. that is like almost yeah. cost at the price of the hardware, sold at the price of the hardware it would create to make? And it's like, yeah, I mean, how this is permanently connected to the cloud because it has to always receive commands from Google, and like that just doesn't yeah. work, right? And if we can tell people, don't buy this cheap things because it just sucks then i hope that like the you know it will also uh manufacturers will start to notice that certain things don't sell Mm -hmm. right because i think what what i feel what i notice in just general in society now is that we you know it used to be that there used to be very few manufacturers of every product and so those they were all very good at it and they were like you know but they were pricey but high quality and now there's just a lot of cheap alternatives of a lot of different products and they're just shitty and they fall apart. Uh, yeah. But you don't see that per se in the store. 
Mm. Right? But then you use them a couple of times, you're like, oh, this doesn't work anymore, etc. And yeah, I feel like if as, as we teach consumers about IoT devices, like just buy stuff that's local, buy stuff that can keep working, and then it's yeah. better in the long run. And like not all cloud products are bad. Like sometimes it's... Some things just would require cloud because they do a lot of computation that cannot be done on the edge, at least sure. yet. Um, but at least then see who pays for that cloud. Like if you pay a monthly subscription for something, clouds are fine. You know that that's how it's covered, right? They don't have to read out your data. They don't just go away if they cannot sell more products or something, right? Sure. And, Hopefully, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's when I see like, you know, like a, a Google... Home Mini or something. And I'm like, well, you know that they're using this data to learn from you. Like, why else would it just be free? Course, like, that's course. it, yeah. If you're not paying for it, then you're the product, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, and, and it's funny because I was reading this the other day. Sometimes even if you are paying for it, you're still the product, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, right. But, but I mean, we, we've seen this kind of stuff again happen over and over and over again. I mean, Logitech is a great example of just how they just really ticked off the entire community by just being like, yeah, you know what? You got this too bad right well, it's going to be bricked you, as of yeah. whenever there was this uh um this device that people were circuit i think it was called a cricket it was a device just like last month they decided it's for uh, making like custom mugs and stuff like this you could cut mm-hmm. out like fabric and like um they decided that if you want to work on more than three projects at the same time you had to pay a ten dollar a month subscription even though you already bought the device and stuff oh, no. and people were pissed off yeah, and then now, yeah. now of course they reverted it after like a month of like everybody yeah. being like I, super I, I, Yeah, like I, I also get it's like, hey, listen, our costs are going up, so from this point forward, if you want to do blah blah blah, cool, right? Like, fine, yeah. I, I could see that, right? But uh, yeah, that's that's definitely not uh, a tactful way of doing no, things. It's, not. it's like Belkin and their Wemo. They like put out a, I think they put out a firmware mm. saying, um, oh. oh, you can't use Google yeah. Access anymore, and then. After, you know, saying, you know, their whole advertising pitch was we will never charge a monthly subscription during the pandemic, of course, you know, no, no one's buying any of these devices, so they can't fund their servers and same thing, right? Uh, we're going to have no. to charge a monthly fee now, right? Yeah, so. right. Yeah, I think, yeah, it, it sucks, but it's, we're going to see it happen more and more often. I mean, I yeah. always like to give the example of a company that does it well is uh, Signify or Philips Ulite. Mm-hmm. Yep. They actually have a page on their website saying there is remote control and like Google, like that cloud part of our hub, you can, uh, it's guaranteed that one year from purchase, this or two years from purchase, this will remain working yep. uh, or, and potentially longer. So I think their first hub worked for like seven years or something, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. at least they're clear about it. They're honest. That's and true, yeah. I really wish more manufacturers would do that or even, I mean, I actually just want a law to be passed that like, you know, you have to guarantee users or tell users honestly yeah. how long you're planning to offer cloud if it's being sold. Mm, yeah, because there's yeah. like, we've seen it, I think there was um, uh, those car monitoring tracking devices that shut down mm, uh, yeah. April last yeah, year, yeah. right? They just said, oh, we're closing down, we're shutting off our servers um don't send the devices back to us just chuck them in the bin basically right and so there's all yeah. that e-waste and people have you know put hundreds of dollars into these devices um and now they can't use them anymore right like so it's going to become a bigger issue definitely yeah there's yeah. definitely an environmental impact too right in terms of to your point phil all the e-waste that gets generated because mm-hmm. you know somebody decided yeah i don't want to 
I don't want to yeah. be in this business anymore. I don't want to do whatever. But. Right. But yeah, sometimes it's also, you know, it's uh, when it comes to like cheap devices, like it's a luxury to be able to afford more expensive devices, right? Like if you are, yeah. like there's many, there's many light bulbs in your house. If you are putting 10, 20 light bulbs in your house, then all of a sudden like $3 or $10 more is a lot of money. Sure. Yeah. Sure it is, right? And, so and, yeah. and that multiplies just more and more, yeah. more and more, right? Yeah. I think that's so the, yeah. you know, it, it's, I think there 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 has to be some kind of balance, right? I think between cost of device to um, you know the value of it, right? Like yeah, but yeah, I I have high hopes f- uh, for chip because of this because mm-hmm. um, there's many like you know if if Google and Amazon or Apple are all involved with chip, so if they start speaking chip, then a lot of more manufacturers will be incentivized to use chip. Uh, and for the readers that are not listening, CHIP stands for Connected Home over IP. It's a new home automation standard that's being uh, developed under the Zigbee umbrella. Uh, so yeah. it's like a spiritual successor to Zigbee, uh, one could say. And they're actually developing reference implementation together with it. So including like an ESP32 firmware. So what would happen is that if you are a Chinese manufacturer and you know you like making cheap products but don't want to bother with software... You could actually just put a, a, a chip chip in it <laughs> and <laughs> take the open source implementation and you have a product you can sell. And that means that we can have very cheap light bulbs with just local chip APIs mm. that don't need any cloud. And we kind of like, you know, this yeah. whole topic that we keep discussing every month in the podcast, yeah. right? Yeah. Can become yeah. a thing of the past. I mean, well, that will give us to talk about, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's I right. mean, there will be because... The thing with the standard is that if you want to differentiate yourself as a manufacturer, you now need to go beyond the standard. So all of a sudden you can either say, I don't implement the standard or the standard can be used to control parts of my product, but you still need my app and my cloud to do other things. Mm -hmm. And then they will break that. Well, and and, and you get, that's why if you look at Zigbee, there's all of these discrepancies, right? Between what something as simple as a motion sensor can do. Oh no, for sure. But I think uh-huh. that would be nice if it's all standardized in that, like, it will, if they all use the same software, it should be more yeah. the same, but they'll find yeah. a way to mess it up. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's it, right? And and I, I I don't know, like, for me, I'm I'm also a little skeptical when, when these new protocols come out, right? Because, I mean, you think of how long ZigBee Z-Wave have been around, but, I mean... Google, who's also working on chip, is also you know they've they also had Thread, right? Which well, wasn't no, there was no, Wave so, or something as well. I or think? sorry, the Wave. wave. Yeah, sorry, not Thread. Yeah, I was about to say because chip uses Thread, so yes. there's different. Um, there's the there's a, the radio itself. On top of it, Thread is the mesh protocol. How messages are being sent around. Yeah, and then chip is the application layer on top that describes the capabilities and the control commands. So, hey, my light is on. Chip will tell you, I'm a light, I'm on. Thread will send that message via nodes to the controllers. But Chip will also work over Wi-Fi. Chip will also work over Bluetooth. They're like predefining this from the beginning already. Mm -hmm. Like this is how it's all supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, point is, there's there's all of these different protocols that ends up up being... uh, develop right and and you know hopefully you know people are able to actually standardize on it and we say okay like s- similar to how we standardized on ip in the networking world and said 
okay, you know what, we're going to stick to this model. Um, and then, you know, there, there are transitions happening there too, but even then it's, you know, with IPv4, IPv6, things like that. Okay. Let, let's give a nice, easy way to transition this at a software layer. Right. So, right. So the, the, the transition that is gonna, uh, I know. So Silicon Labs, which yeah. is the company that owns, uh, Z-Wave and it's, Z-Wave, comp- yeah. Yeah, and it's, they, I think they produce like 70% of the world's Zigbee chips. They uh, are obviously also involved with chip, but they are actually working on a, uh, a coprocessor or a chip that you can put in your product that can speak Zigbee and chip at the same time. Mm. And because if you think about it, Philips U and IKEA cannot just start selling chip lights. They need to yeah. be compatible with all their old lights for like yeah. pretty much forever, right? If you have invested, especially in the Philips U ecosystem, that stuff is expensive, right? Yeah. You need to your your the gateway you buy needs to keep working with it. So yeah, yeah, they will not launch until they can be compatible with both protocols at the same time. And yeah. so that I mean that transition will take a long time because yeah, we have invested in our houses already, right? We can't yeah. just like throw all that stuff away. Sure, and and sometimes it's you know several thousands of dollars worth yeah. of worth <laughs> exactly. of stuff, right? And yeah, yeah, you know, so. it's tough, but yeah. If you look at the new, uh, all the new stuff that Google is launching, um, so they just announced the new uh, Google Nest Hub with the display. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually has a thread chip in it. Interesting. And I think that there, okay. I might be wrong on this, but I think that their uh, their Wi-Fi mesh also has thread chips in it. So they want to be able to also create a thread mesh in your house to help you get all this data. But of course, they they want to have that chip data instead of like home system. Yeah. But yeah, it will yeah, be. Yeah. It would still be good if they just become routers and just like repeat all those messages until they hit the controller, and then Home Assistant can be that controller. That would be the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah they'll be like so, yeah, little nodes so they can increase range and yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming out. I mean, there's. I feel this industry is still very, very, very young, and we're finally getting to more sensible standards, and then. Yeah. Adopting those standards, I mean, to you know, if you think about like having Philips Hue and IKEA like build those compatible gateways and all this, I mean, we're talking years, not yeah. like months, right? Totally. Um, but it's gonna be freaking cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hope again. Hopefully, hopefully, there's some there's some uh, authority around this too, right? Not not authority, but like like a way of organizing these again, like whether it's like an IETF or or some kind of standards body that says, okay, you know, this is how we're going yeah. to well, develop so from this is here the, on. The Zigbee Alliance is like taking care ex- of this ex- exactly, right? Yeah, but then but then even even any modifications again now Zigbee Alliance deals with Zigbee and Thread and that kind of world, and then there's eighteen other ones that no, <laughs> that of end course, up of popping course. up, right? So. Yeah, I right. think, I mean, Zigbee always had the problem that there was no strict certification. Like uh, anyone yeah. else that had the Zigbee compatibility, like could claim Zigbee compatibility. And Z-Wave always had a single vendor. Mm. Now, yeah. that's also the reason why everybody's using Zigbee because no big corporation is going to buy a chip that has only one manufacturer because they sure. can raise up the prices and you're lost. Yep, or uh, tomorrow shut down and guess what? Yeah. Your product is dead. Yeah, so. right, exactly. So... Yeah, for wow. a better world, there will be. That's right, that's right. <laughs> All right, Rohan, so on to some, I guess, other stuff, you know, now that we've got our release out of the way. I think the flavor of the month has really been about Node Red with you and I. We've been talking back and forwards, you know, with the mm-hmm. past few guests we've had on. They've 
been talking about Node Red. I know my inbox has been flooded with people's, you know, in their disbelief <laughs> of my uh, lack of enthusiasm around Node Red. So, Rohan, you've actually taken the plunge. Tell me about your recent experience with Node Red. Yeah, so I, I want to backtrack, and and it was a couple of reasons, right? So one mm-hmm. was again because to to Phil's point, I was right there with him, going, not that I was against Node Red, I just didn't care for it. And instead, you know, I was I was using the built-in home automation. Uh, sorry, wow, I was using the built-in home assistant, uh, YAML-based automations, and everything. And a colleague of mine basically talked to me about it, and he was like, "Hey, man, check it out, play with it, do whatever." And uh, this last week, I I just took the week off, so you know, I had a bit of free time. So I said, "All right, you know what? Why not? Let's uh, let's actually try this." Uh, so currently, outside of my web hooks, which I have, I think like two, maybe or maybe three, mm-hmm. um, all of my other automations have uh, basically moved into Node Red, including some that I couldn't get working in uh, in just uh-huh. with YAML. So a couple of things I learned, um, you know, it is very easy to uh, to make uh, make these flows and and to create these automations and. You know, simple automations obviously are, as the name suggests, simple. Um, whereas even the complex ones, I found it just easier to think out, you know, as I'm drawing it out, being like, okay, what do I want to do? I'm still learning some of the constructs in Node-RED and just trying to say, okay, you know, would I use this or is there a better way to do this? Uh, so in, in, you know, in no way am I saying that my flows are uh, efficient, mm-hmm. but a lot of they all work, uh, and and a couple of the ones actually that I found was uh, I wasn't able to get working in the past just because it was complex even from the YAML perspective. So as an example, one of them was I want to open my door, uh, like my my back door that leads into my patio. If I leave it open for more than three minutes, kill the echo bee, and then if I close it again, then put it back to the state it was in. Mm, right, okay. so. I very rarely use the auto uh, auto uh, feature. I typically do heat or cool, mm-hmm. um, and just because I don't want you know the AC running, just in case it is in, like AC running in the winter or the heater running in the summer, yeah, just because the, the temperature fluctuates a little bit or whatever. Um, so I like to hard set it, but then you know I don't want to flip change my automation every time spring or fall or whatever mm-hmm. rolls around. So whatever I had it set to, I wanted to uh, go back to that got that working um you know that it, it did take a little bit of kind of uh drawing out and and you know i haven't really i know there are ways to do like subflows and things like that it's like a flow within a flow mm. um i have i didn't do any of those yet but uh got it working works beautifully actually how's the re- uh, i'm guessing you're very impressed with the resets time right you just click a i think it's a reload button or something and then bam your automations are alive right no re- needing to restart home assistant wait for all the entities to repopulate or anything like that exactly uh so there's there's a little deploy button that that's mm. uh that's kind of on the top right of the screen you click that and all of a sudden it's there and what's really cool is i mean we're talking about breakpoints and we're talking about all this stuff um, there's actually ways to inject um, a specific thing. So like I can force a trigger. Um, so as an example, uh, I can just click and drag another node, uh, which can basically I can just, pre- it's, it's called an inject node. So I can just mm-hmm. press the button that comes with it and I can simulate my door opening, my door closing, things like that too, mm. uh, which which is uh, which I thought was pretty neat. Yeah, so it will allow you to debug your automations and, and all that pretty pretty nicely. 
Yeah, exactly. And and just, you know, a b- bunch of other things too, right? Like uh, it actually steps you through the automation as it's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, sometimes it does go pretty quickly, um, <laughs> but but it it is still pretty i mean you could you could add delays and things like that in there too right so just at least while you look at it uh you can delay things like that so you know what overall i am definitely impressed i think i will probably stick to node red i i, I haven't found a reason to go back to it uh, mm-hmm. i know one of the other things is there's also you know people that can create these uh nodes i guess is a term yep uh which is basically you know, the function that does whatever, right? So uh, I imported a couple of custom ones for like uh, time ranges or like to say like, you know, between or trigger and on at this time, trigger and off at that time, that kind of thing. Yeah, it works, works really well and, and it seems to be pretty extensible. So uh, I know there is one for webhooks that I want to get and I'll probably move those over too. And yeah, action, actionable notifications work beautifully. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, so I remember seeing there was a a type of node option, node like a a traffic light. I, I can't remember the terminology, but there's a, yeah. a traffic light little component that you can add in, and yeah. you, know, you can you know put in like you know if a doors open, you know it flicks that traffic light from you know go to stop and, and all that. So yeah, yeah exactly. I, I can see the powerfulness there. It's just in terms of the way I think of automations, I will just see I can just see like a lot of entry points and things go like spaghetti going everywhere, right? So. But do yeah. whatever works for you, I guess. Exactly. Like, like the, the the spaghetti piece was kind of my my concern at first. But I guess as you build it out, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, if I if I look at somebody else's, I don't I don't mm. know that it would. Maybe it will. Maybe I will now. But you know, uh, I think in the past when I didn't really use Node Red, I was kind of looking at it and I'm like, okay, what what is this, <laughs> right? Like. Like, like as, as in, I can see it visually, yes, but I, I don't know necessarily what's happening or things like that. So, but you know what? It, it actually works very, very, very well. And, and the nice thing is I don't have to putz with some of these, uh, like, like the, uh, Jinja two templates and mm. things like that anymore. Uh, I think, I think those, those were what really put me off of the YAML automations. Um, just, by virtue of me being me, I'm just very bad at those in general. So, <laughs> how do you find the general speed in terms of Home Assistant and Node Red communication? Like, if you open a door, is there a, a delay that you've noticed in the automation firing? No, it's pretty much uh, pretty much on point. One one thing I I did notice is one of my automations, which is uh, turn on. I think it's just my was it my Good Evening one? It might have been my Good Evening one. It. Uh, it didn't uh, fire on the, like, so it depends on sunset, right? So the time mm. changes. So today it was 7.15 on, uh, p.m. Yep. So, but it, uh, it it triggered at like 7.15.20 instead of 7.15.00. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that's, not, that's not a home assistant and node red communication issue. That's just a thing. So, and, and I'm sure there's ways I can tweak it. And, and it might actually, that was actually one of the custom uh, nodes that I, that I uh, installed called uh, Skedex. Okay. Skedex. Yeah. Um, so it might, it might, it might be, it might be a facet of that, right? Yeah. Where I think, I think I can actually even probably specify as like a, just a seconds, but in my case, I can't just because I have it as at, uh, like a trigger is sunset start 
is mm. the actual terms, right? So um, yeah, and that can be very variable based on the angle of the yeah. sun. I'm guessing as well, right? But but what's neat is I can actually see what time that will trigger. Right? Oh, so, interesting. Um, so if I let's say tomorrow morning I go in and look, so I actually do sunset start minus thirty minutes. Yep. Um, so I can see that today that was seven fifteen p.m. And even if I checked this morning, it would have said seven fifteen p.m. Mm. Right. So um, actually, right now it's uh, sorry. Every, every time I said seven fifteen, it was actually wrong. That was the upcoming <laughs> one. Yes. Right. Yeah, because yeah. it it is technically tomorrow for me. Right mm. now, <laughs> uh, it's it's about twelve fifty three in the morning. So yeah. So so I know tomorrow at seven fifteen p.m. That's going to get called. Right. Um, today, just looking at times that everything else was triggered, seven forty one was the time. So it, you know, point is, it it's really easy to decipher these kind of things. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, which I think is, to me, that's a that's a really nice thing there. Have you had to start using any JavaScript code or anything like that? Because I know, you know, like YAML has your Ginger templates. Node has, you know, your JavaScript code that you can then customize yeah. down further if you need to that, you know, a special node can't decipher for you. Have you had to do anything like that yet? Not yet. Um, and, and if I did, I'd probably just find something that somebody's done in the past <laughs> and copy and paste it. If not, I give up. No. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I haven't. Right. Um, and, and, you know, if there's, if I'm trying to do something that complex, uh, where I need that Mm -hmm. so far from everything I'm doing, and, and I've said this a few times on the show, like my, my automations are fairly simple, I think. Right. Uh, the one I described earlier with the, with the echo bee going back to its old status or whatever, that was probably one of the more complicated ones I've gotten. That's not even that complex. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, unless that that changes at some point, I don't I don't see that being a thing. Nice. So, yeah, I'm overall I'm pretty happy with it. Well, I'll check in with you in a couple of releases and see how you're going. Yeah. All right, Rahan, I think it's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, yeah, see everyone next release. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. If you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest, reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io. That's H-A-S-S podcast.io. The Home Assistant Podcast is hosted by Phil Hawthorne and myself, Rohan Karamandi. For links to topics that we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io.